This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the inflatable podcast that started its journey long before this shipping lane got busy. I'm Alexandreou. On today's show, on the day of two catastrophic by-election losses, it was also confirmed that we ended last year in recession. What does this mean for Sunak's five pledges and his electoral prospects? Plus, Britain is doomed, we are told daily by a familiar list of right-wing commentators. Why are so many Brexiteers now addicted to talking Britain down? And we choose our heroes and villains of the last few days. Let's meet the panel. First up is the Associate Political Editor of the New Statesman, Rachel Cumley. Hello. Hi, Rachel. Um, Rachel, Kemi Badenoch, your favourite, um, she's got into a massive public spat with former post office chairman Henry Staunton. What's happened? Well, firstly, she's not just my favourite. She is the favourite to be the next Conservative leader, possibly sooner rather than later. We'll see. Not great for her at the moment. She's at war with the post office or rather the post office scandal. So the former chair of the post office accused her and the government essentially of stalling compensation for the victims of the Horizon software scandal uh, and also suggested that he had been dismissed because and this is a quote that he alleges that she said they needed someone to take the rap for the scandal, which mm. is pretty, pretty major. She hit out on Twitter over the weekend in very, very strong terms, calling these allegations lies. Um, and she's giving a statement in the House of Commons as we record this podcast. She's backtracked on the lies language slightly. She says there's no evidence for these claims and that they've been misrepresented. Um but she's still essentially accusing him of having made it all up because he was bitter uh, for over mm. being sacked. He, meanwhile, has come out and said that he's got a paper trail for all of this. So this is going to be incredibly interesting to follow. It's going to be very interesting. And, and just because I think most people's instinct would be the sort of let them fight Godzilla gif, <laughs> um, we should say that Henry Staunton was only appointed as post office chair last year. So yeah. he really has very little to do with this. Um, could this impact Badenoch's uh, leadership ambitions, do you think? Is that is that why she's had such an extreme reaction? Because she senses that the stakes, the danger is really quite significant. Well, there might be some of that. Obviously, Ed Davey was a post office minister at one point during the many, many years while the Horizon scandal was playing out and has really taken a lot of heat for it. I mean, there have been lots of well, he was ministers. He was post office minister for a year and a half. Yeah. 
Well, it was going on. Wasn't it? There, 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 I mean, there out of there, 25 years, there, it's like... <laughs> there, were, there, there were over a dozen, I think, uh, yeah. ministers, post office ministers at various points from, from all parties. Um, but I think the fact that he was the one who was still a, a prominent figure in frontline politics meant that he got a lot of heat for it. Yeah. So I think Kemi Badenoch will be concerned that as somebody who is herself in frontline politics, uh, a lot of the the kind of tarnish of the scandal could come off on her. But I think there's sort of a wider point about her attitude and demeanour. We were talking about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about how she doesn't really like talking to journalists and she's also quite yes she's you were quite saying ag- that. i say aggressive defensive like her attitude often when she's asked a question she doesn't like is to really go off on one and you saw her really go off on one over the weekend with those tweets and if there is a, a leadership campaign you're going to have lots more examples opportunities for that side of her to be on display to the public next up is political correspondent for the independent zoe grunewald hi zoe hello So, Labour language on Gaza has also moved a little again this week, saying that Israel may have gone beyond self-defence, calling for a lasting ceasefire right now. That seems to me stronger than it was. There is an SNP motion on Wednesday designed to put Labour in the spot. Might they be manoeuvring to actually support it? Because they've refused to say when asked whether they would or not. Yeah, so Wes Streeting was on the uh, morning media round, very much sticking to the line, which is that they need to see the SNP motion before they make a decision. He says they're considering their options. I think what's really significant about this is it's not only the second time that this sort of amendment has come in front of the Labour Party. We know last time it caused a huge split. Almost one third of Labour MPs backed the uh, rebel amendment. Um, I think it was 10 maybe uh, shadow ministers also backed down and and resigned their posts in order to support it. You know, Starmer came under a lot of pressure. We also know that the public um, is upping the ante as well. So uh, I think a YouGov poll last week said about two thirds of the public now support a ceasefire immediately. Mm. 80% of Labour voters also support a ceasefire. Um, So we can see that Starmer is strengthening his language. Now, what's really interesting about this is it comes a week before the Rochdale by-election. We know that this has been disastrous in Rochdale. So people are talking about there's a real prospect that George Galloway may win there. Um, That is quite worrying for a lot of people, a lot of communities. I was speaking to uh, a community leader in Greater Manchester earlier who was talking about his concerns about George Galloway taking that seat. Um, And Labour are just really nervous about the accusations that they let this mm, happen. Mm, yeah, yeah. So whether Labour actually do support this amendment, that's yet to be seen. But you're right. What we are seeing is is quite interesting. They yeah, are yeah. sort of avoiding the question. presumably the SNP will then fashion it so that they can't support it. They're not going to want to look like they're following in behind the SNP. Yeah, they're yeah. going to want to look like they're leading here because they're at, you know, loggerheads with the SNP. So they might put down their own... Very, very possibly. Um, but yes, it's all, it's all yet to be seen. Um, but I do think what we are seeing is a movement towards something to that effect. And finally, our guest this week is the only comedian to have performed at both the Labour and Conservative Party conferences. What a whore. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Alistair Barry. Thank you, sir. Lovely to be here with such a wonderful and warm introduction. (laughs) Alistair, you have recently had gigs that took you into the dreaded Schengen area of this place called E-Urope. Never heard of it. Um, How did you find the experience? Uh, well, I mean, I've, someone must have had a look at my Instagram because once again, I uh, I showed a picture of uh, one queue that was EU passports with 
no one in it, and then <laughs> one that was full that I was in. And this has happened about five or six times since I've gone over to that foreign place you've just mentioned. And uh, every time I've I've sent I've sort of put a picture of it out. Uh, there's been each time fewer and fewer angry people going, this has not happened, you are making it up. Yes. Whereas now there was just one, literally one response going, I have travelled quite extensively since Brexit and haven't really noticed a change. <laughs> I've done about five. And my, the absolute winner was going to France. Uh, Charles de Gaulle, we were in a queue, myself and another comedian, in a queue for two hours and ten minutes. Uh, it was two wonderful things. One was another comedian behind us with an EU passport, took the flight after us and came and landed an hour and a half after us and met us at the other side of passport <laughs> control. And the other one has happened a couple of times. I don't know if you've seen it. The French, I mean, I know there's this narrative that they're doing it just to bait us, but um, <laughs> twice, uh, just a, a delightful French lady, you know, just a, a bog-standard Air France uniform, but somehow made it look like Coco Chanel in yeah. Haute Couture, yeah. just walking up and down the queue, just going, a European in the passport? <laughs> No, no. So yes, there's uh, there's there's been uh, some interesting travels to Schengen, and uh, frankly, my experience is that it is harder to get into countries uh, now that we've taken back control. Presumably, your set still includes the odd reference to Brexit. How do audiences react? Well, it depends. I mean, I did say about the queue that I was in, I'm, I'm sure that more than 48% of us were pissed off. Although, obviously, 52% <laughs> of us knew that that's what they'd voted for. Um, I, To be honest, the gig I've just done, actually, I've just come back from Norway where I was doing forces gigs, and they're not the least Brexity or the most Brexity people you'll ever see. But actually, when you do um, gigs with more EU nationals, I think it's safe to say, I mean, my, my take is, is what the hell have we done to ourselves? And, and it seems fair to say that their take is, what the hell have you done to yourselves? <laughs> so, yes, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I definitely am including some Brexit material. The last week started as Keir Starmer's most difficult one for some months. By Friday, he was high-fiving the team and celebrating another two historic by-election wins in safe Tory seats. People went to the polls on the same day it was confirmed that the country's economy actually contracted in the second half of last year. The political weather can certainly change very quickly nowadays, but as environmentalists have been pointing out for decades, the weather is not the climate. Despite sunny blips, the political climate is getting steadily worse for Sunak. Back when the PM articulated his five promises, he said he expected people to judge him on the results. I quote, We will either have achieved them or not. No tricks, no ambiguity. We're either delivering for you or we're not. But by what margin is he missing those pledges? Is there still time to turn it around? And what will failure mean for his electoral fortunes? Rachel, let's talk about those by-elections first. How bad were these defeats for Sunak and his party? Oh, they're pretty bad. They're pretty bad. So I went up to Wellingborough um, a couple of weeks before the by-election to meet the candidates, spent some time with the Labour candidate, tried to spend some time with the Conservative candidate. They did not want to meet. Uh, that Peter Bone's girlfriend? Peter Bone's girlfriend, Alan Harrison. Um, and that is a seat that had an 18,500 majority. It was a seat that Labour told me had not been on their target list, wouldn't have been on their target list if it hadn't been for a by-election. And... Oh, look, they've got a Labour MP now. Kingswood is a bit different because that 
was always going to be more of a marginal. But that, I think, is bad for the Tories in a slightly different way. I went and interviewed Chris Skidmore, who was the Conservative MP, who stood down and triggered that by-election. Chris Skidmore, he referred to himself as the Pete Best of the Britannia Unchained Beatles, because obviously he is the author of that book, Britannia Unchained. Yeah, uh, and he's never got into Yeah, it's, it's Liz Truss, Quasi Quarting, Dominic Raab and Priti Patel and Chris Skidmore. Um, everyone forgets that, that he was involved in it. But basically he said that he wanted to trigger a by-election because he wanted uh, Kingswood to be the opposite of Uxbridge and South Ryslip, where the Conservatives clung on to Boris Johnson's former seat by 470-something votes. And they took from this that the way to win an election is to U-turn on net zero climate policies and push back really hard against anything like... ULES or uh, funding for green energy or anything like that, that would win them the election. And Chris Gidmore was the minister who signed Net Zero into law and he wanted to give them a by-election defeat that showed them the opposite lesson. All of this very roundabout way of saying, yes, bad for the Conservatives. <laughs> the the um, idea of uh, calling yourself Pete Best to the Britannia Unchained, kind of that metaphor does rather overlook the fact that the Beatles were quite good, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> That's it? That's true. As That's opposed true. to Britannia Unchained, who produced some of the most disastrous policies and one of, well, the the all-time winning disastrous prime minister of all time. But that they, is they a fair did point. Produce, they did produce a prime minister, though, which is, you know, but more than, than the Beatles. Yeah. 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 Very, very, very much a one-hit wonder. <laughs> um, now, Sunak gave a, a poll clip on Friday on this, which seemed to imply that this was just mid-term blues. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, um, that there is no enthusiasm for Labour. And apparently the message he takes is that he must stick to his plan. Is any of this true or relevant or is it? (laughs) What's happening? I mean, on the one hand, like, what do you expect him to say? Do you really expect him to say, yep? We're fucked. Like that's that, that's unlikely. I mean, I think a lot of people would respect him more. Oh, he'd if win he some people that. over with that, wouldn't um, he? It is true that governments fare badly in by-elections. It is true that turnout for both of these is very low. But the biggest story is the complete and total collapse of the Conservative vote. That is true. That is a point that you can make. That is not necessarily a point that I think should comfort the Conservatives mm. to say, no, the people who voted for you four years ago really hate you now and won't come out and vote. Like, I'm not quite sure yeah, how I, that's meant to be a positive I message. Don't, I also don't get how that is a is their response to say they didn't, you know, we didn't lose because they like the others. They we just lost really because hate they us. really hate us. Yeah. Um, Zoe, Jacob Rees-Mogg, another favourite, um, he hailed Kingswood as a victory for the Conservative family, I quote. Is the assumption that all reform votes would revert to Tory a, a safe one? I think you did some work on that. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, give Jacob Rees-Mogg the new chairman of the Conservative Party role because that is some spin, isn't it? That is some really, really impressive spin. Um, Can I tell you, before, <laughs> before you tell us, the funniest bit of that is that he was asked... Because half of that constituency is actually going into his constituency after the boundary changes. So um, the the Sky journalist that was interviewing him said, so are you here to keep an eye on what's going on? And he went, oh, no, I'm here as a, a you know, because I'm a correspondent for GB News. <laughs> I just thought, I just thought, what are you doing? <laughs> Much like Nigel Farage turning up to the popular conservative yeah. movement yeah, as yeah. a as an observer, observer yeah. of GB Sorry, News. Sorry, so yes. tell us about the polling. Well, so it is true that 
reform voters look like conservative voters in many ways. They are similar demographics. And just as Professor John Curtis said uh, last week, for every one person that's turning away from the Conservative Party and going to Labour, there's one turning away from the Conservative Party and going to reform. So there is something to be said in the fact that the Conservatives are losing voters to the Reform Party. So the outflow is going quite largely to yes, reform. Yes, it is a pretty safe assumption to make that the majority of reform voters do look like conservative voters and may at one point have voted conservative. But the problem with this is it assumes that these people could be tempted back to the conservatives and they're not, you know, just doing a protest vote, which is often what reform is. Um but I, I did do a piece of work on this because Richard Tice, who is the um he's the leader of the Reform Party, has basically said that they are parking their tanks on Labour's lawn next. So they've they've got the working class conservative voters. Now they're going to go for the working class Labour voters. Now, I spoke to several pollsters who said that just simply wasn't the case. Working class Labour voters will not vote reform. And one of the reasons for that is that still about 75% of Labour's voter base support being in the EU. They don't want to leave the EU. And the major thing that determines if someone's going to go to reform is how they feel about the EU. They don't like it. The other point that was made to me by... um, Lord Hayward, which I thought was very interesting and something we forget, is we talk a lot about the working class and we often think of the white working class, but actually a lot of Labour's working class base is black minority ethnic. Mm. Um, And reform have done nothing but set about alienating those voters. So this idea that reform now can snatch a load of votes from the Labour Party is just simply not the case. You could imagine a circumstance where people might think about moving away from Labour, but would they think about reform necessarily? The EU is still the big question. I'm I'm still reeling from the idea that you'd believe John Curtis over Jacob Rees-Mogg when Jacob Rees-Mogg is so clearly a <laughs> Listen, it was, of truth. it was a tight competition, but I just, just well, about I, John, I, mean, I, I really Jacob, trusted. who, that wonderful interview he had with the farmer last week <laughs> where he was taken apart, also a man who believes the uh, new regulations are an act of self-harm and named all 900 of his children after Renaissance Pope. So I'm <laughs> definitely going to go with Jacob on this one, I think. Um, I guess the thing, I feel for them a little bit because all this feels very much no i do on one level because this feels very much like what we were doing after the two labor defeats we were adding up all the votes that could and should have been ours um how do these defeats do you think add to the doom narrative about the conservative party in the media because that's that is quite influential when it comes to the actual mps Mm. i think uh well, we didn't see as much dissent as we might have thought we had from Conservative MPs. Obviously, we had this statement from the new Conservative group, which is that kind of uh, pretty right-wing, low-taxation, family values group of MPs led by Miriam Cates and Danny Kruger, who said um, Rishi Sunak needs to change direction. He needs to adopt much more Conservative values. And basically, everything they listed was kind of what reform are talking about anyway. Lower taxes, roll back on net zero, um, higher immigration curbs. Um, and obviously, uh, Andrea Jenkins was, you know, always gets a pop in when she can. <laughs> out and about. Uh, yeah, out and about, saying things. But uh, so far, it's it's remained relatively together. Um, but I think they're all waiting for the locals as mm. well. I think they're and thinking... And the budget. That, and the budget. Um, yeah, I think at the minute, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, but we're seeing a lot of pre-briefing about the budget. I don't know if anyone's noticed. A lot of conflicting pre-briefing yes. about... Like, it seems to be... He seems to be flying kites in all kinds of directions. Well, you have to ask seeing... who, who's it for. And yeah. talking about, we are going to lower taxes, we are going to lower taxes. I mean, that's just sort of saying, 
Please don't kick me out. Alistair, a total of 58 Tory MPs at the last count have announced they will not be standing for election. They include people like Ben Wallace, Dominic Raab, Matt Hancock, Sajid Javid, Kwasi Kwartek. I mean, big names. What does this tell us about the mood in the party? tells us that uh, 58 MPs is a woeful underestimation of the amount of uh, Conservative MPs who will be looking for a job at some as yet unspecified point in the future, depending on how desperate Rishi Sunak is. And if it is January next year, then I think they are really going to be so desperate. What's interesting about that list, though, that you read out um, is... uh, Ben Wallace is the only one, I think we can safely say, who has got a reasonable CV. He had a, seemed to do a reasonable job as Defence Secretary. And I mean, the others, Matt Hancock, if there's a game show available, Dominic Raab, if there's a horror film to be made, <laughs> and Quasi Quarting, if there's a horror film to be made involving economics. So it's, I, generally speaking, <laughs> it's showing, I think a lot, of, especially like Red War guys, guys who've literally come in and realised, that they're going straight back out again. And actually, again, as you were saying, feeling for people, if you've suddenly gone to a, a job in Westminster making, what is it, 85 grand a year, maybe you've upped the mortgage, whatever, it's all a little bit terrifying for them. Mm. But I think, I mean, as you say, I mean, when you started this piece, you said uh, back when Rishi Sunak made his five pledges, which I have to pick up on the tense there, because as far as I can remember, he makes them every time he opens his bloody mouth. Yeah, yeah, and does. it's totally well, he's, he's kind of eased up on that recent. Yeah, Someone no- must. Just, have gone, mate, I've shut noticed. Up. Shut up. We're going to yeah, yeah. <laughs> now. Like he all just of them. refers to it as the plan. Yeah, the plan. The or, plan. Yeah, delivering yeah. on the people's priorities, yeah. which I just don't. I, see I have that to say, Alistair, I like to cast against types. I would go for Rob in the quiz show and Hancock in the horror film. Oh, my God. I think that would be quite chilly. New, new one called the scariest link, just with what a throbbing <laughs> vein. Um, there are reports, incredibly, that a group of Tory MPs are trying to convince Sunak to stand down rather than risk another leadership challenge. Um, would another change of leadership, you think, annoy voters even more? Are they maybe now at the, let's just, Let's just get the goalkeeper to go and play as a striker because what else could It's obviously insanity, but at the same time, they are now trying to work out how to replace a leader in a slightly more friendly, cuddly, inclusive manner because Rishi has clearly not... I mean, there was a tremendous thing I heard Simon... Is it Simon MacDonald, the former um, civil servant, saying... The extent to which you have people in office now who have no experience. Sunak only came into 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 Parliament in 2015. Yeah. He's proving himself to be woefully inexperienced. I mean, the bad calls, the terrible politics. It's evident for everyone to see. But actually turfing him out as they turfed out Johnson, as they turfed out Truss, even they know it would look ludicrous. Mm. Mm. So somehow they think sneaking up to him and going, could you just quietly just put your own letter in so we don't have to put ours in, suddenly seems okay. I mean, it's insane, but you can see why they're doing it. Um, Rachel, many Tory politicians and media proxies are keen to point to this being only a technical recession or paper recession. Do they have a point? I mean, yes, in a way, but not the point that they think they're making. The point they're making is if the economy grows by 0.2% or shrinks by 0.2%, the impact it will have on people's day-to-day lives is minimal. The problem is people won't feel it because what they're feeling is a cost of living crisis anyway. So you can make the the same point almost in reverse and say when the economy grows at 0.2%, which, you know, we had yeah, some Yeah, no one seems to say it's just news. paper growth. Uh, <laughs> but people don't feel it as growth mm. because their material circumstances are getting noticeably worse. Right. And there's a point that's been made by the Centre for Policy Studies, one of the 
right wing Tufton Street think tanks, but you know, stay with me on this, that the economy would need to be growing by 2.9% every single year over the next 50 years if we want to maintain current welfare spending. Now, you can argue that that is a point about them trying to cut the welfare bill. But fundamentally, the reason that we have such a funding shortfall in the NHS, in public services, is that the economy is basically flatlining and has been for the last decade. Mm. So it doesn't matter that it's a technical recession, a paper recession, rather than an actual one. No, what matters is we've got stagnant growth and no real plan from any of the parties as to how you can get it back to that line well, that means I, we can maintain spending. I guess the reason it matters, I would say, is because Jeremy Hunt for two budgets now, or one budget and one autumn statement, if you want. I mean, he's actually called them the growth budget and an autumn statement for growth. So he's meant to be throwing everything at this, everything, and it's nudging slightly the wrong way. And to come out of that with a with a conclusion that our plan is working, <laughs> it seems to me a little bit to challenge credibility. He came out after those figures and said, look, it was always going to be like this because dealing with inflation depresses economic growth, but dealing with inflation was the priority. I mean, why then promise to do both things at the same time? <laughs> Because uh, this is kind of what I said, and every economist said, said well, back last year that you can't those two. Yeah, the tackling the are, tackling one, yeah. the tackling one exacerbates the other. So I think what he was doing was looking because he's a spreadsheet guy, right? Looking at all the spreadsheets and going, "Aha! The very clever economists at various organisations think this is likely to happen anyway. If I say it's my plan to make them happen, then I will get the credit." For them happening. I think that was the, the broad idea. The problem is that now they're going in the wrong direction. He and his government are going, you can't blame Someone us. They will, be on, they will be on our control. And everyone's like, yeah. but you said you were going to fix it. It's so, almost as if the, the forecast that it was going to grow and you go, was that an actual genuine forecast or was it just people going, sooner or later, it's got to, hasn't it? It's got to get back to it at some point. I think they've almost gone, they don't, because they don't want to use the words rich I can't even do it. Recession. Recession. Because everyone's gone, that would work, wouldn't it? Conservatives have gone, no, we don't want to call it that. And even Labour have gone, I don't want to pronounce it. Okay, so so the head of the OBR caused a bit of a a bit of a, a fracas last month by describing forecasts beyond 2025 as worse than fiction. Mm. Is the government able to ultimately achieve its growth and debt targets by just pointing to a future that they've made up? Well, I feel like we're getting, I mean, we talked about this earlier, we're getting a lot of briefings and anti-briefings about the, the budget, which, as I said, really indicates to me that the government is panicking and feels like the walls are closing on on all sides. But you've also then got the OBR and the IFS and all these, you know, big economic, you know, yeah. uh, and pa- powers England. that be, and the Bank of England saying, uh, well, hang on a second, how are you going to fund that? Um, the the latest thing is And the woke IMF, let's <laughs> not forget <laughs> them. And the OBR has basically come out and said, um, in Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement back in November, the projections they, they made um, were given on just very limited information. So the government kind of deliberately gave them just headline figures it's quite convenient because now Jeremy Hunt can come out and say, well, actually, the OBR's, you know, edited everything and changed it and reforecast. I think there's new figures coming out on Wednesday. And that's actually given us less room and oh, 
damn the OBR. (laughs) It just feels like more of this kind of briefing against institutions and trying to act like the government is somehow being repressed or squished by the powers that be. And there's so much pressure on the Conservatives now to to, um, put in tax cuts, but they know it just isn't possible because, as Rachel was saying, public spending has been so depressed. There's no way that we can keep public um, services in this country functioning. So uh, Jeremy Hunt is in this kind of rock and a hard place of objective economic reality and what the Tory right that have got their you know, them in a in a vice yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, want. Um, Alistair, let's talk uh, briefly about the other two targets. Uh, let's start with More stopping pledges. the boats. <laughs> stopping the boats. I mean, was that just a stupid thing to, pro- to promise? I mean, not in terms of it being a sort of a salient issue that people care about, but I mean, the, the no, method. But did anyone no, ever? But, I, I mean, mean no, but, even but then you put Rishi you, Sunak. Oh, but you put Pretty Patel in charge of it, who comes up with stuff that makes you just go, "What planet do you?" I mean, she was some sort of wave, a machine. wave machine yeah. that we were just, and it would just magically kind of. I mean. It was kind of King Canute, and I use the spelling advisedly, the kind of pushing the waves back by wishing them back. The fact is that because of Brexit, we lost the Dublin arrangement, so therefore all the problems we have, not all, but a lot of the problems to do with asylum were suddenly not, we were not able to deal with it. We we haven't taken back control. We've in fact given it up. There are much better ways of dealing with the boats involving, you know, maybe speaking to the French, although as I've actually earlier described, it's actually quite difficult to get into France now. Um, <laughs> so at the same time, if we spoke to the French, if we genuinely tried to tackle, you know, the actual gangs rather than the people who are essentially yeah, yeah. victims. And what have you got? You've got Nigel Farage sort of sailing around the Kent coast in a done up winchy to going look there's more invasions that's not the way to deal with it there was a sensible way to at least make inroads into the problem but that if you put pretty patel you surprise me charge, you surprise i know me. it's that's not, not the way you thought i was going to go with it um what about nhs waiting lists uh sunak admitted in a recent interview that they failed at this, but he's blamed junior doctors for it. I mean, well, of course that's fair, isn't of course it? They're on strike. Well, they are on the strike. Lazy side. No, they, they're a great. The problem I have with this, my dad is uh, was a surgeon, and he genuinely said to me, "You know, the people doctors striking are not doctors." And the thing is, the Conservative government have weaponized that refusal of the medical profession to even countenance striking. So, if you look at actually their real term pay. Um, and how much overtime they do for free. I mean, they probably actually earn less than a barrister at Pret, and frankly, they should probably now go to Pret because there's a lot of opportunities for the lack of EU workers who used to fill those positions. So there is a difficulty with with doctors striking, but the idea that the waiting list is to do with doctors striking is is pie in the sky, really. There There was a small... I don't know if you remember it. There was some sort of pandemic a little while ago. That may have played into it, and I don't remember the strikes happening then. It's a blame game, and it's the only thing that the blame game is the only game in town, as far as Rishi's concerned. Um, Rachel, the BBC also reports this week that millions of people are not on the official statistics at all because trusts have been instructed not to include people who need ongoing care. I mean, I am actually part of those statistics because I need two operations for something, and I've had one, and the other one has been postponed for months, basically. So I don't even appear in that queue because I've had some treatment. I mean, is there a political risk to constructing this that sort of reality? Debt is coming down, the economy is growing, NHS lists are falling, and I've stopped the boats when people's lived reality can see that that's not happening. Yeah, I think that's a major issue. I mean, the government got round 
various courts labeling Rwanda as not being a mm. safe country by simply passing a law that says Rwanda is to. safe or trying to. Uh, and uh, I think you're seeing a similar thing is if we just say that the NHS waiting lists are coming down and that the economy is <laughs> doing great, then, you know, we'll have said it and, you know, we'll have met our promises. The waiting list thing is really worrying for anyone who is trying to access treatment it's a lot worse or going to turn up to A&E it's a lot worse than even that it's it's reflected uh, in in news reports but Sunak is just very bad at this and it's not just NHS waiting lists last week was housing week and the Conservatives have belatedly caught up with the fact that there's a housing crisis and Sunak wrote an op-ed and his his line was it, our plan is working. Like, no, the whole point of doing this intervention is that it's it's not working. He just doesn't get it, which is the line that Keir yeah, Starmer yeah. is using a lot. So, yes, it is a real danger. It's his new five pledges, isn't it? Our plan is working. Someone, someone eventually is going to go, can you stop saying that? Because it clearly yeah. isn't. Yeah. Apparently, one of the things that comes up a lot in focus groups about Rishi Sunak when people talk about him is that he's arrogant and he talks down to them. And I think that is... And patronising. Patronising. If you keep saying our plan is working and people are like, no, it's not... That's what's going to come up, and yeah. people are picking well, up on that. I mean, yeah, they're going to show him with votes mm. as they keep mm. showing him. Well, anyone who goes to A and E, as I had to with my wife a little while ago, goes, "The problem is not a lack of staff. The problem is too many patients." And I know that's sort of slightly counterintuitive, <laughs> but actually, you know, every we were put there because they, we couldn't go to the regular mm. doctor, and so everyone's going to A and E just to to try to get their. We were sent to one one bit, and then they sent us back. Everyone's going to A and E, and then you just look at it and go, "Well, there you go. It's clearly not working." This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Who got a BAFTA and who just got DAFTA? Mm-hmm. Zoe. My uh, my hero of the week is yep. Ofcom. Because okay. they are investigating uh, GB News for the Sunak Q&A last week for a, for a possible impartiality breach. Possible. Possible. Um, and they say this is because their rules on the broadcasting code require that um, a significant range of views must be included and given due weight in any kind of news programme. And I don't know if anyone here watched the Rishi Sunak debate was called, but basically it's quite clear that it was a very well-selected group of people who watched GB News. It was just who, Tories. Yes, who weren't giving Sunak the uh, appropriate scrutiny that he should have. <laughs> um, and I think just basically it's about time that GB News probably did get some investigation from Ofcom because there are so many conservative politicians working for it. You have to ask how impartial it is when it's producing news. Um, and then my uh, villain is the police because there was a story today about the people who were murdered in Nottingham. So this was the um, stabbing of Grace O'Malley Kumar and Barnaby Webber. And it's yet another horrible police story about um, police officers sending inappropriate messages detailing the extent of their injuries. Um, And it just shows you again that the police just aren't 
often aren't professional in these mm. circumstances mm. and that clearly there is a level of dehumanization that sometimes goes on especially when you get these kind of horrible horrific crimes um and yeah i'm just sick of hearing these stories about the police acting unprofessionally yeah. rachel my hero of the week is john elledge because i think he deserves it um, and also because uh, he has, in addition to writing a column for The New Statesman and being a regular panellist on this podcast and others, started a new column called NIMBY Watch, where he is <laughs> taking aim at sort of the minority view that block any housing project for any kind of reason. And we keep hearing can't build on the green belt, like build, build on brownfield first. So he is detailing. Uh, housing projects that are on brownfield land, often uh, in and around London that have really good transport links where nothing is being done on this land and local residents or local campaigners are blocking them because there aren't enough affordable homes. I mean, I would say that anything more than zero is better than zero or because it blocks their view or because that car park was actually of like really deep cultural Heat historic value. Yes. Uh, and I think uh, John and I should get a shout out for NIMBY Watch and uh, my, my villains are all of the people who think that you shouldn't build a thousand homes on a dilapidated <laughs> car park. <laughs> the NIMBYs. The NIMBYs, yeah. Okay. Um, how about you, Alistair? Well, you know, as chairman of my local residence association, <laughs> that car park was really <laughs> But I've read John Elledge's book and it's very good. Um, hero, my hero of the week, Arthur Ingram's judgment in the Trump case was great. Well, it was the fact that it actually went up by about 100 million when some more information came in. And it was very... I mean, surely the best way to deal with a lot of this is just by sort of simple, unemotional language, which he did. Apart from there was just one bit which I did love about the about the whole family. Uh, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on the pathological, which I, I think borders is doing a lot of work in that sentence because it is just pathological, isn't it? Um, and villain? Villain, a very obvious one, is Putin and uh, the horrors of Navalny. Um, the sight of seeing Putin, there's nothing worse than seeing a charisma vacuum looking pleased with himself. And that is what he's doing at the moment. Mm. And it just shows quite how appalling the situation the is. Tucker Carlson show. And how we desperately need to deal with it a little more seriously. Mm. Right. OK, so um, Judge Enger, and I think, has a legitimate claim to hear of the week. Mm. And I think NIMBYs have a yeah. legitimate claim Down with to the villains. Because... There just is a, there is a constituency, a demographic in this country that is just no, mm. no, no to everything. And the one fucking thing they should have said no to, Brexit, they said yes. <laughs> so yes, down with an <laughs> Worse than Putin. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we left the EU over four years ago, despite telling us Ramona's not to talk Britain down. The right-wing intelligentsia <laughs> is doing exactly that. And with such hyperbole that the headlines have become a running joke on social media. Take the Telegraph's own Nostradamus, Alistair Heath, for example. A huge... Feel free to laugh on I'm microphone. <laughs> um, a huge fan of Brexit. And yet last week he wrote an article headlined... For the first time in my life, I am now beginning to think Britain is finished. He's not the only one. There are a lot of others just like him. Why are they obsessed with feeding their readers this constant diet of unrelenting lugubriosity? Is it just something to write about, a reflection of their crisis of faith, or is there some darker motive? Alistair, 
Heath's piece is the latest in a series oh, it is. that includes cheery gems like Western civilization is being destroyed from within by forces we can't control. <laughs> and the idiot West is sleeping while the end of the world draws near. And the woke blob is about to achieve its greatest triumph of the final takeover of Britain. Those guys. Well, what, do you, what do you think? <laughs> oh, that woke blob with Seriously, their tofu. Seriously, though, what is going on there? I think it's insanity. There? What I think is, is happening? I, I think Alistair Georges Friend Heath, for, he spells Alistair, A-L-L-I-S-T-E-R. Speaking as an Alistair, that's enough of a crime in well, itself. Well, he was born in France. He was born so in France, and his entire journalistic <laughs> career seems to be an act of revenge against that fact. I actually, my last show was basically... It's actually it was, Alistair. Alistair, yeah. It was actually, my last show was... It was slightly inspired by my mother giving me a subscription to the Telegraph, uh, and I. But now I think balance is incredibly important. But then I started. Reading. You ain't going to get it in the Telegraph. I was, no, but he. I mean, <laughs> literally the day after Liz Truss's budget, I don't think it's controversial to say it was not a roaring success. That budget, and he literally the next day, this is the best budget I have ever seen a Tory prime minister. And literally a week later, he wrote another one called "I may be wrong, but I'm not wrong." And then my point exactly. And then he had another one, sort of like over the summer last year, saying that uh, Britain is ruled by a shadowy cabal who refused to listen to the the opinions of the majority. And I was like, yes, the Conservative Party. But, <laughs> no, it's it's he's unhinged, and that one is is genuinely, you know, Britain I know is no longer here, and it's that sort of I come into London and I'm scared I'm going to be killed by jihad, and you, you're not. Okay, it's just you know I come into London and I go this place is. For Falling apart. There's a wonderful old quote. Someone said, "You don't notice that the town hall hasn't been painted until it's not painted," and that is what is happening to the fabric of our society all around. We talked about tax cuts. I don't want a tax cut. I want a GP's appointment when I can get one. I want a train that might turn up on time. Most of us don't give a fuck about tax cuts. Most of us care about things working, and that's where Britain's falling apart. We're Alistair Heath screaming about it, and then, as almost all of these ones do, veering into a discussion of uh, Israel and Gaza, is is. I just think I mean, it's, it's, it's a, what's extraordinary is that the editor usually picks like the most cl clickbaity quote for the title, and and you think maybe the piece is not so bad. And with his pieces, they really are <laughs> like the whole thing is like that. It's like a fever dream. Someone once described the the paywall. In the Telegraph, I was just walking away from a drunk man in a pub <laughs> <laughs> as it fades, you know. Um, you might expect a generic sort of controversial columnist to pump out this stuff occasionally, but what does it say that he's a Sunday Telegraph editor? Because that to me seems quite an important piece of this puzzle. He's not employed as some Katie Hopkins figure. No, but at the same time, The Telegraph is a paper I grew up reading because my parents get The Telegraph. Yeah. And I now read it. And I mean, bless their hearts. I mean, I did. there was one, I read a headline out to my mother. And it says, says here, the woke rebellion must be fought. I mean, what's bollocks, isn't it? And my mother went, well, actually, I think the woke rebellion must be fought. And I said, well, what is the woke rebellion? And she said, I don't know, but it definitely needs fighting. <laughs> and that seems to me to be the kind of, it's it's so, I mean, they've got a woke word count, everything. The, the, the fact that that's the editorial slant makes me look at what was once, whatever your politics, a great newspaper. Mm. And it's now a kind of, essentially, sort of like tin hat conspiracy theory, mad propaganda rag. Mm. Rachel, who is your current favourite 
screaming headline alarmist. I mean, you gave us a reading list and you didn't put Brendan O'Neill on the reading list, which I can <laughs> oh, only yes. I can only assume was because I, you care about our mental health proper, and well-being. No, but also <laughs> I don't consider him a journalist um, of any kind. No, Brendan O'Neill is somebody who I feel long before ChatGPT was a thing, just wrote all his articles by algorithm. The woke, spin the wheel, uh school children are now into spin it again french chocolates does that work <laughs> <laughs> um, but of the of the ones on the reading list i did like sherelle jacobs one which is uh headlined britain is almost bankrupt pm starmer will be the final nail in the nation's coffin because what she argues and i think this is brilliant is that labor you can't trust them on anything you can't trust them on the economy they'll just spend loads look at the 28 billion green investment plan which they then scrapped, and that is bad <laughs> because God. it shows Labour doesn't have ideas for growth. Mm. And even though that was the wrong idea for growth, they, they, they actually, yeah. it's a wonderful sort of, I went through it being like, U-turn of the article and U-turn and U-turn. I can't work out what it's actually arguing. I think there are sort of slightly different things going on with what they're trying to do. I am deeply uncomfortable uh, as a British Jew of how since October 7th, anti-Semitism and the really disturbing rise in anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic incidents, which I have experienced, is being co-opted by a uh, faction of people who I don't really think have ever thought much about anti-Semitism before, don't really seem to care that much about Jews, but by God do they hate Muslims and immigrants, mm, mm. and using yeah, British Jews as a kind of shield, and, and that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Zoe, is there a danger that for people out there who are isolated or in small communities, it sort of paints a terrifying view of the world that they then fully believe? I think so. But I don't think it's necessarily those people who are reading the Telegraph. I mean, I think there's so many people, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a big paper. Mm. It has, the thing we should be more worried about are the the, the people who are, you know, fully embedded and surrounded by people who are believing this stuff and reading it and parroting it out. I mean, I think people who are isolated and lonely, they tend to get, a lot of them can get their news elsewhere. YouTube, you know, there's so much unfiltered news in inverted commas on there that people are just watching and there's no sources to yeah. it and it's just totally kind of insane. And then I also think that because there seems to be so much interest, there's this monetization now of, of YouTube and these kind of really, you know, big, insane, polarizing voices on there, that newspapers are trying to find their, you know, yeah. their little yeah, niche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more kind of extreme and outrageous and, and you know, wild your op-eds are, the more people are going to click them, sign up, read them, get through the paywall. And I do think there is a push for people to start spouting those more extreme views that previously might have been on YouTube. Mm. You know. I thought Rachel's the, the, the reading list that we were given, I, I sort of read most of them and there was the one thing that struck me about them is basically they were all screaming, we used to be tolerant, now you bastards have stopped being tolerant. <laughs> and it struck me as slightly intolerant in, in, in the way that they were writing In it. that list. They're a bit snowflakey, aren't they? they I know. I'm They're very really snowflakey. Very, very easily they are they are constantly victims. I think mm. they're defined by their victimhood, despite sort of having gotten Brexit, despite, you know, having the government they wanted for a decade and a half, they're somehow still being <laughs> It's time for a conservative government. You know, by, by a, you know, a, 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 woke blob. A, a clerk in the National Trust that wore a, a rainbow pin or something. Mm. Um, 
But do you think there is a divide in that list between people like, let's say, Douglas Murray, whom one might suspect of a grift, and people like Alison Pearson, whom one might suspect actually believes every word that she writes and who's more dangerous I'd I say no I mean there's a slight element with almost almost all of them that there is a slight you know even a stop clock tells the right time twice a day I mean I think the bottom line is that there is we, we live in this furiously binary world where there's black and white and we all know every issue is not black and white there is nuance but nuance doesn't sell papers the entire bedrock of journalism which was essentially buying newspapers has disappeared and as you said so rightly you know, if you can get clicks, then you might still have a job in the morning. Mm. And that is why people are chasing, whether it's a comedian putting his clip up on YouTube or if it's a journalist putting a, an article out on the website, you are chasing engagement. And that seems to me to, it's it's a little unfair to say you believe it and you don't. But I think, that, again, there's a massive grey area between the two. Rachel, is there a political long game here, do you think? Is there a coordinated attempt to shift the debate further to the right? I think there's some of that. But I actually think there's something else that's going on too that's really interesting. On the reading list, um, there is Stephen Glover who writes about uh, how, I'm just going to quote this, it sometimes feels as though Labour didn't really lose in 2010 and the Conservatives <laughs> haven't properly been in power. Next year, Labour will probably win the election and resume formal control as if they haven't ever So the last 40 years <laughs> that was actually Labour. Bobby Ewing pre-shower. I'm hearing this a lot. I went to the Popcorns launch, I listened to all the speeches, not just Liz Truss's. And that was very much the message that, yes, the Conservatives have been in government, but they haven't really been in power because Tony Blair made all these changes in the new Labour era and changed institutions and devolution and put his left-wing friends at the BBC. And basically, the institutions are woke and therefore what could a Conservative government hope to achieve? And the reason I think that's really interesting is because the Conservatives are having to grapple. I've had senior Conservative figures text me this privately and say, you know, between us, the real question is, we had 14 years in power. Why do we have so little to show for it? Yeah. And that's the excuse. That's why we failed to set, to do mm. what we said we were going to do. So I think you're going to hear a lot more about that after an election defeat. But I also think it's really worrying because it just takes away any kind of accountability. They're basically mm. saying, life's really shit now. Yeah. And when you go, yeah, but you guys have been in power, they go, well, we haven't. Not really. It wasn't, really, it wasn't yeah. us. They should get together with the Corbynistas yep. who were convinced that he won the 2017 election. They won the argument. <laughs> They'd be great friends. Um, <laughs> Zoe, one final question. The equivalent for the left seems to me to be confined to quite niche spaces. Do you agree with that? Or, or is it just my impression? Are, are there mainstream left-wing publications that do the equivalent sort of... Um, and what explains that? Divide? Yeah, it, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think clearly there is more power and more money in a lot of these right-leaning newspapers yeah. than there are in these left-leaning ones. And that's probably for quite obvious sort of ideological reasons about, you know, building a business and who has power and things like that. But I mean, what you I think you are seeing more of is a mobilisation of very left-wing voices on social media and these kind of communities growing. But you're mm. right, you don't they don't have the same sort of mainstream media mm. power that the right do. Um, but yeah, it feels like the left mobilises more on social media in these sort of 
circles. Yeah, and yeah. I guess that maybe is to do with it being more grassroots, more kind of, you know. Maybe slightly younger. Yeah, slightly Problem younger. Is the, the dictatorship of the proletariat has failed to grab the means of production. That's obviously what's happened. Okay. What, do you, what, <laughs> what do you call what we're doing right now? <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What cultural caves have we been spelunking this week? Rachel. I always go lowbrow and everyone else goes highbrow. So I'm going to do a mixture of both today. Um, I have read and uh, I interviewed him on it, Brian Class's new book, Fluke. It's political philosophy mixed with evolutionary biology and some physics and theology in there. It's basically about like the chance randomness of life and how uh, very, very small things can make big differences. And it totally changed the way I think about things. But one of the things that it, it sparked me to go do is go and rewatch the 1998 eight film Sliding Doors Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> where oh, yeah. she she misses the train by a split second and her lives like diverge which one is a great film two reads like it was a philosophy PhD student's fever dream and three like Brian Class's book has got me thinking small things like oh it doesn't matter that I've missed this bus or whatever because my life could go in a completely different direction now and that could be really positive and also, it could be disastrous, but, you know, like, we're talking about positive things here. It it does change your way of thinking when you give up the sense that you can control and predict mm. what's going to happen and just accept happenstance and randomness in as, life. As counterweight, I would offer a very good episode of Frasier called Sliding Frasiers, um, which takes that plot and diverges wildly on a very small decision and ends up in exactly the same place after taking a completely different journey. How that, about you? That, that's convergence. Right, that is convergence. The idea of convergence. How about you, Zay? I have been watching The Apprentice. Okay. Um, which uh, it's just <laughs> such punishment. brilliant TV. I'm sorry to say, I, right. I always very much enjoy. It. I the can't thing stand is, it. Uh, yeah, that's totally fine. I mean, the I thing that's it. ridiculous about it is these people are what business people. You know, that's their whole that's the whole shtick. But every week they make them do something that this, <laughs> you just wouldn't do. Like they yeah. had to make cheesecakes, and yeah. it was all about how good the cheesecakes were. Or they have to sell, you know, a. Are you Five sure star you weren't ho- watching Bake Off? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, come to think of it, Paul Hollywood was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. Um, but it's you know, it's just so extraordinary what these people put themselves through to just be berated by Alan Sugar for you know. TV, but yeah. and I, I don't think any. I mean, it used to be that actually you got quite good people on The Apprentice, and now it has become a bit ridiculous. And they deliberately clearly get people who are just provocateurs. But... I mean, I would watch it, but for Ellen Sugar, but yeah. just that toxic cock swinging boss thing celebrating you're fired I do know what you mean but the people are often so ridiculous that you want to be there telling them they're fired but it's that thing if they go like I'm a hard guy and he's made a terrible mistake (laughs) and doesn't understand the kind of guy he has let go and you go you're making fucking cheesecake mate it's not you know you're not uh, you put a whole fig on top what's your escape escape route Um, I'm terribly sorry to be uh, mentioning another podcast on a podcast on my debut appearance but I have been listening to a lot of the rest is history because I do a lot of miles and 
it's just one of it's got that wonderful i mean i'm fascinated by history anyway and i love, love hearing anything about it but it's got that wonderful mixture of lightness and there's a real uh, real charm and and chemistry between uh dominic sandbrook and tom holland who present it like anything anyone who does anything with love and you can hear how much they're enthused enthuses you and it's I, i've I'm, i've got another 400 episodes to go and i'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying all of them okay well, I'm sure they need the help. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not my favourite podcast, obviously. I watched two uh, very good films. I'm also going to go highbrow and lowbrow. And the first one is The Holdovers, which is just the loveliest, loveliest, most life-affirming thing I've seen in a long time. And Thanksgiving is the goriest, funniest um, horror I've seen in a very, very oh, long see, time. Oh, see, I can't do horror. It's, no, I'm it's, not good with horror. It's literally uh, people murdering each other because of Black Friday sales. Um, <laughs> and I cannot tell you how funny and 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 dark it is. And those are my recommendations. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. And thank you to this week's guest, Alistair Barry. Thank you for having me. Alistair, where are you performing this year and where can people get tickets? Uh, I've just finished a tour, but actually probably the thing to plug is is I had to pull one of the tour dates. The tour, tour's called Woke in Progress, so that seems to uh, fit in with what some of the stuff we were talking about. I am in Liverpool uh, on the 1st of March with the rescheduled date that I had to pull last year. Uh, and so generally speaking, just uh, follow me on the socials to find out where I am. But if you're in Liverpool on the 1st of March, uh, I will be doing the solo show there. Lovely. And a good what now? We'll be back on Thursday for our backers and Friday morning for everyone else. We have had a surge of supporters over the past couple of weeks, which is very encouraging. Time are getting tougher in podcasts as well as the outside world. So when you pledge a tiny amount to us, it really makes a difference. And we are really grateful. So here are some more thanks to our newest backers. Thank you for your generosity. Hello and big thanks from me to Helen Palmer, SDI Merce and Jane Samuel Walker. Hello from me, and thanks for backing us to Thomas, James Murray, and JC. And finally, many, many thanks and welcome aboard from me to Kbolt33, Nick, and Michael Showland. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh God, what now? It was written and presented by Alex Andre, with Zoe Gronewald, Rachel Cunliffe, and guest Alistair Barry. The producer was Chris Jones, editor Robin Lieburn, video production by Mike Bollen, and art by Jim Parrott. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now was a Podmasters production. <laughs>